Okay, hi everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. You know, the handsome one that stands right between Billy Sheen and Paul Gilbert. Yeah, the guy that wears glasses. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, bringing you a special off-schedule edition of Focus on Metal. Yep, apparently Richie's been getting some feedback, and people have been requesting that, uh, if at all possible, we put out some extra episodes for those of you that are sitting at home and in quarantine or just don't have anything to do right now because you're out of work. And so I thought, well, let's try to do our best to make that happen, even though Richie and I are still both uh, crazy busy, fortunately fully employed, yeah, but after an insane week this week, I thought, you know what? I got a little bit of time. I can get a special episode together. And uh, we're going to try to see how many more of these we can do to do a couple of extra ones, at least another extra one during the week. I don't know if it's going to happen every week or not, but uh, it's definitely going to happen this week because uh, you're listening to the damn thing right now. And just for shits, I went back to see when the last time was that we did a special edition. And uh, fortunately, the last time it was because we had so much content that we just had to get some of it out. And way back in 2014, we did three different uh, melodic metal specials because we had so much melodic metal content and we were falling behind. And, uh, you know, that was a good reason to do it. And uh, this time, uh, it's not so much of a good reason that we're doing it, but we're doing it nonetheless because uh, you guys need it. You've asked for it, and if we can make things just a little bit better, then uh, we're going to give it a shot. So this week, we're going to bring you a quite lengthy interview that Richie did, oh, back a while ago with Eric Martin from Mr. Big. And I've had this one edited up for a while, and it was going to go into a show, and then some shit happened, and it just never happened. But I've been sitting on this audio all this time, and I thought that, uh, you know, I got a little bit of time today. And I thought, what the heck, I'm going to get a special edition, you know, together for the listeners, make life a little bit better. So uh, that's what we get going on this week or this week. I'm so used to doing weekly shows, but that's what we're doing today, right? So with that, why don't I turn it over to Richie as he chats with Eric Martin. Hey, Eric, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I have you on. We're going to talk about the first Mr. Big album, which is 30 years old, if you can believe it. It's not that I can believe it. It's hard to remember. <laughs> I try to. I know. Yeah. Um. When is the last time you listened to that record? Uh, I think it was the last tour because I had to refresh my memory. We played a couple of the songs after, maybe three, three songs after the after that record. Hmm. And I kind of checked it out. Yeah. I mean, Kevin Elson, who um, produced all the Journey records, all the good Journey records in the past. And he also worked with um, Leonard Skinner, and he he actually did my first solo album in 1983. But but he um, like solo band album is called uh, Sucker for Pretty Face, Eric Martin Band, and, mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. Anyway, but yeah, he when I listened to that record, it was at I remember that it was it was the that late 80s reverb mm-hmm. it was just so popular back in the day and, and and you know this is like kind of my first heavier rock 
you know, stuff, because I, I was doing all kinds of rock and R&B kind of music, like, you know, maybe like Toto-esque, you know. Hmm. And so, so when I, when I sang on that, um, that first album, with Babes and Reverb, which I, which I, I kind of love that stuff. Um, and, uh, and huge kind of drum sounds and everything. But, yeah, I mean, overall, it's, it's a pretty, pretty good, uh, freshman effort, you know? Hmm. And, yeah. Yeah, now we're, were you satisfied with your career up to that point? Like, were you looking to get into a band? I was. I, I, I wasn't satisfied. I, I was in and out of... Um, but I had, my, you know, like I had the, the rock band, you know, the Eric Martin band. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and at the time, you know, we were just kind of unknown guys. We were kind of big fish in a small pond in um, Northern California. Uh, Troy Lachetta from the band Tesla was the drummer. You know, he later on he went to Tesla, and then John Nyman was the guitar player, and he later on he went to YMT, mm-hmm. and we were a really great band. I thought I mean, kind of like the poor man's Night Ranger. I think you know we had two <laughs> two guitar players, dual lead solos, but uh, different from Night Ranger. Really, kind of like a just the main lead. I was the main lead singer, mm-hmm. but um. Uh, so we, I did that, and I was in a, a bunch of solo band, or not solo bands. But I did, I was on a couple, did some solo records. On that uh, was Electra, and I went to Capitol, um, and I, you know, just kicking around. Like I said, more like R and B kind of new wave style a little bit, and, and you know, okay, let me change. Okay, so like I did the rock thing, did the R and B thing, did the new wave thing. I couldn't latch on to anything substantial because everything was just too many slamming doors in my face and I didn't know what to do. I auditioned for a couple bands. Um, one of them was actually Toto. Um, I auditioned for Toto kind of maybe a year or two before I met Billy Sheehan. And uh, I was almost in, but it didn't work out. And I think, um, so I got, I got a phone call from this guy, Mike Bernie. I don't know if you know who that is. But yeah, Shrapnel. Shra- yeah, amazing guy, uh, a great song guy, uh, guitar headhunter. He discovered guys like Paul Gilbert and I think Vinnie Moore and uh, Tony McAlpine and all that. But mm-hmm. he was a good friend of Billy Sheehan's. And he called me up and said, hey, let's you know you've been kicking around for years. And you haven't, you know, you haven't made it. I mean, like you, you've been almost there, but, you know, you just, you know, you know climb back down the ladder. And uh, he said, uh, are you looking to join a band? I said, yeah, that kind of depends on what it is. I like to play with some great players. I've, I've played with some great players in the past, but, I, you know, I like to have more than just one foot in the door, you know? Mm-hmm. And and he he said, well, I know this guy Billy Sheehan. I played with played with Jamie Goff. Um, he's, he's getting out of that band. He wants to start a, a rock band. And he loves your voice. You, you know, rock band was kind of like a soul singer. Um, a la Bad Company or Free or something like that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm totally into it. 
and then Mike Barney was notorious for putting people on party phone calls, you know, so because <laughs> <laughs> he goes, Greg, well, you can talk to him yourself and Billy was on the other end. And oh yeah, and I've already said like no, I never heard of Billy Sheen before. I've only seen him on uh, MTV Yankee Rose video, you know. Mm-hmm. Said, yeah, he's kind of colorful. He's a colorful character. That's what I said. And um, Billy got on the phone. And I go, I go, hey man. It was, he had a really low voice, and he goes, hey man, let's start a band. Let's start over. Let's do something that uh, could be creative and lucrative and. You know, I, and he and he goes, I know a perfect guitar player. So, and that was Paul Gilbert. Pat Torpy came in to audition. He was the second guy. The first guy was this guy Bobby Rechica, who was a friend of Paul Gilbert's, and uh, he was good, but you know, he didn't have the uh, he, he didn't have the spark. And Pat Torpy was the spark. Mm-hmm. Second audition, he came in. You know, he knew every Led Zeppelin song. They, those three guys, they jammed on Led. They, they jammed on anything. They play, they could play anything. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I remember we were at a, um, when we all got together, we were at a studio. I think it was called the Alley in the Valley, Alley in the Valley, in, the, in North Hollywood. You know, those, those guys were all from Hollywood, and I, I was from. Um, the San Francisco Bay Area. So I had to drive up all the time over the last 20 to 30 years driving back and forth. <laughs> but anyway, oh yeah, it was, it was a pain in the butt ass, but it was, uh, you know, it, it was fine. I mean, I had no desire to move to LA. I didn't like that. I don't like the place. Huh. So, um, and I, yeah, I mean, I used to, I, I lived there and I struggled there and I, I hated it. And those guys, they, they found work and I just couldn't, I, I just didn't dig it. Mm. So, um, yeah, I drove up back and forth, and like I said, it was at the alley, and Pat Torpy came in, every Led Zeppelin song, especially one that stood out was uh, The Crunch, and he could play that perfectly. And uh, <laughs> it was ironic to be, I mean, I can see, I, I have a piano, like a, and I still have it, it's a, Yamaha three P seventy Yamaha Baby Grand Piano, right? And it was on kind of these um this frame these stilts or something like that, right? And I had it in the middle of the uh rehearsal room and then the guy set up around it. When I was writing a lot of songs on piano back then. Or just, you know, as an instrument. I mean I, I was there was no room to set up any guitars because uh Paul had every corner of that room uh, you know, filled with amps and so did Billy. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it was, so it was piano in the middle, patchworky, uh, to the right, Paul in the middle, Billy in the left of me. And, uh, and then we just started jamming on songs and I, I, I can see, I can see Paul Gilbert right now. First of all, he used to come to the rehearsal room, you know, wearing some really wacky, 1980s looking outfit, you know, <laughs> super skinny. Uh, and the guy was like six feet, maybe three at the time, or two two or three, and he'd wear all kinds of crazy clothes, and, and he had all these amps. I don't remember what the amps, uh, what the names were, but they were Day Glow. 
It was like green day glow speakers <laughs> and orange and orange day glow speakers. And then you had this these um these Ibanez guitars, maybe I, I think, with uh assholes painted on it and they were different colors. And then and then like one of those guitars had a fringe on it at the bottom. It was it was great. I, I, I kept looking at Billy going, oh, fuck, I don't want to be in a band. He's too crazy. He, he's an amazing player, but it's like, it's, it's not like a, you know, German, I felt like I was in some sort of you know, circus act or something. <laughs> now, Eric, you didn't know any of the other guys at all, did you? No, I didn't know any of them, but I knew of Pat years ago. I played in like a bunch of cover bands and stuff. Or not cover bands, you know, original bands that that we threw in covers. And I was in um, a town called Monterey. And I was just walking on the street. We had a, I think we had already played and, and it might have been like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. We, our, you know, we opened to some band. I can't remember what it was. But there was a band playing at this club. We just poked our heads in. And the and the guy that stood out the most was the drummer, and that was Pat. I didn't know him, and he was. I think the band was called the Spin. Or, no, no, not the Spin. I forgot. I can try to find out. But anyway, I I go, who's that guy? I think his name is Pat Torpy, and I'm like, Torp? Wow. And I never met another Torpy ever again until I met you know Pat again. But um, then. I had a Eric Martin band thing back in 1985 and 87. And my manager at the time, who actually eventually turned into the manager of Mr. Big, this guy, Herbie Herbert. Uh-huh. And he managed Journey. See how their connections are here? Uh-huh. And I really got Kevin Elson and the whole bit. But anyway, um, Herbie was uh, uh, making this huge deal that I was going to open to Tina Turner on the private dancer tour. And, uh, you know, it, was, it would have been a huge thing for him because I was still living at my dad's house on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, struggling, man. You know, when you're, when you're in high school, maybe your parents give you allowance, but when you're an adult, when you're like past, you know, when you're 22, 23 years old, or even 20, I think, and I, I, I know I was older, I must have been like 26, 27. But like, um, you know, you don't get an allowance anymore. <laughs> you I was washing dishes at some <laughs> restaurant and barely, and, you know, sleeping on my dad's couch. And it was fucked. Um, did you audition formally for the band or did you just go in and jam on the Zeppelin stuff and that was enough? No. Um, when Mike Barney talked to me uh, and put me and Billy Sheehan together, uh, I wrote, I wrote a couple songs, you know, like they, he sent, I, I think Billy sent me a couple songs to sing. One was called, uh, uh, <laughs> the heat of the night, which is that I, I was like, well, what? Heat of the night? What's going on with that? You know? And, um, Nice. Wow, this is the late eighties, man. I don't know. The past the years, the heat tunes, you know. And then, um, and then he, I, I think he wrote the song uh, "Whole World Is Gonna Know." And I, 
that which was on uh, Bump Ahead. Bump Ahead album. So, yes, I had that. So that was a demo. And then I had written, oh, oh yeah, ironically, this, and this is, this has nothing to do with our band name or anything. But I did a song called uh, Standing on the Outside that a publisher gave me. A, it was a demo. And it was, uh, it was the singer that wrote it of Mr. Mister. I can't remember that guy's name. Me neither. Uh, Richard something. But anyway, um, and I was, and so I, I sang that demo and then I think I sang, uh, there was another song. I can't remember. I want to, I want to say it was, um, it could have been big love because I had written, uh, mm. writing, writing something like that at the time or just a piece of it. So we made this demo, um, and him and I were walking around Los Angeles and, and the, where all the record companies are and just, you know, hoofing it down the street, going, talking to everybody and playing our demo for. And we did go to Ted Templeman at Warner Brothers because, you know, obviously Billy had an affiliation with him and David Lee Roth and uh-huh. Ted Templeman did all this and and nothing came to fruition. I mean, like n- nobody was into it, and so we just and then then we got Paul Gilbert, and then we got Pat Torpy. So it's just it was just me and Billy first. And it, there was no audition. I he had heard a song that I did on a movie soundtrack called um, the movie was called Teachers, and it had this uh, American star named Nick Nolte. And um, teenage kind of star uh, Ralph Macchio. Yeah. Um, not Ralph Macchio. Karate Kid. Yeah, but was it Ralph Macchio? No, it was the guy. What was that kid's name? Shit, I gotta look it up. <laughs> it wasn't Ralph Macchio. It was uh, that kid that. Um, hold on. It is Ralph Macchio. Ah, okay. It was. It was. Yeah, it was Ralph. Was it? Yeah, it was Ralph Macchio. And he was just, uh, fuck. I hope it's just that the right guy. Um, but anyway, uh, it was his movie. I wrote a song with Neil Sean. Hence the journey connection, right? Yep. And I wrote a song called I Can't Stop the Fire with me, Neil Sean, and my uh, songwriting uh, partner at the time, Tony Tanucci. F-A-N-N-U-C-T-H-I. Anyhow. Um, and later on, Tony and I worked on our other Mr. Big records as well. But certainly, I can't stop the fire, and that's where Billy heard me. And then we was talking to Mike Barney, and that's how I got in the band. So it was, mm-hmm. there was no audition. So did you, Paul and Pat and Billy, go out to dinner and sit down and talk about what direction you wanted the music to go in, or did you just all go in a room and just see what happened anyway? Yeah, we... We went into, uh, okay, first of all, I had to look at the teacher's movie. <laughs> it is Ralph Macchio. <laughs> I'm satisfied. And, and then, yeah, like, I still have some of my brain cells left. <laughs> um, all right, so um, we jammed on just cover songs. And we all talked about, oh, yeah, we, we after we jammed and, 
we didn't we weren't writing songs per se. We're just jamming on Led Zeppelin and Humble Pie and Free songs that we or music that we like. And we, that's what we talked about when we go to we went to this Chinese restaurant all the time in North Hollywood and just kept you know getting to know each other over a few beers and um, Pat Pat never drank and neither did Paul. It was just me and Billy. You know, Pat, every time he drank anything, he goes, oh, man, it goes at my nose. I can't stand it. And I to, when I burp and, and it fizzes. And, it just fizzes. And, it, and Paul was like, no, oh, I don't, I don't, alcohol. And the guy, the guy was raised on a farm in Pennsylvania. I don't know, maybe, maybe they didn't get alcohol out there. You know? I think even, even a young kid, anyway. It was just kind of a late rumor for everything. But me and Billy were like, yeah, more for us, you know. So we um, we drank beer and just talked about direction and and that is the soul. To me, I think the soulful part of Mr. Big is me. It's like you know we never went to uh, we we don't sound like Humble Pie. We don't sound like Free. We have this kind of um, you know four on the floor kind of rock band kind of thing. We have this little prog twist. Um, we have this, and the soul part is kind of you know my voice, I think, um, and our harmonies, definitely. That we none of us knew that we could sing. That I didn't know that they could sing. I didn't know Paul could sing or Billy. I knew Paul uh, Pat could because, oh yeah, oh yeah. I totally remembered what I was talking about before. Let me just let me just say what. Let me just skip ahead. Do you mind? Yeah, go on. Go ahead, Eric. So when I was supposed to get that private dancer tour, um, uh, Herbie came back to me and said, Roger Davies, who was Tina Turner's manager, said, okay, you got the gig. And like on the ele- in the 11th hour, I totally remember Herbie saying that to me. Oh, man, it just didn't work out. The 11th hour, they, they picked some... Uh, another artist to open the tour, this guy, John Parr, you know, like St. Elmo's Fire. Was yeah. Mm-hmm. And I go, God damn it. So, and, and one gig within that tour, what, what two gigs? I can't remember. I think one gig and it, it was in Reno, Nevada. Um, Tina Turner couldn't make it. And, uh, her band, her band made it or, or a few of the band members made it to Reno, but Tina and some of the band didn't make it to the gig, some plain situation. And so they called me and said, would I like to open to um, Tina Turner at the Lawler University? So yeah. So I went there and I'm meeting some of the guys in the John Barr band. And I, and I go, who's your drummer? And the guy goes, oh, this guy, Pat Torpy. I'm like, you dong. And I hadn't heard that name or heard a name to anybody named Torpy for 10 years, you know, hmm. or five years, you know. And anyway, that's, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Hmm. I remember telling Pat Torpy, like, over the years, going, God, you, you stole all my gigs. You stole all my big fucking things in life, you know. <laughs> you, were better, you were the better cover band. You got to play. You headlined at some club in Monterey. And then you got the Tina Turner tour. You stole it from me. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so anyway, getting back to, um, yeah, I did an audition 
Paul didn't audition. Paul, um, uh, Billy judged Paul and a couple other guitar players in some guitar contests in Los Angeles. And we picked Paul. And I think it was kind of rigged because Paul Gilbert, even though he would have probably would have won it hands down anyway, but Paul used to go to Talis shows back in the day. Huh. The band that Billy uh, fronted, right? Yeah. And so Paul, Paul was a huge fan of uh, Billy Shannon and Talis. And Billy used to go, I've seen that kid around. And so when he moved to Los Angeles and he's judging these kids, you know, he probably, he probably just gave a couple points for Paul, you know, in the contest. But nonetheless, he picked Paul to be the guitar player and then Pat auditioned him. Hmm. Uh, so, but yeah, yeah we, so oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm all over the fucking place. <laughs> that, if, if you're going to get an answer, if you're going to get any uh, questions answered by Billy Sheehan or Paul Gilbert, they would they'll be chronologically correct. Me, I'm all over the fucking place. That's, that's all right, Eric. That's all right. That's all right. Um, did you have a plan B? if Mr. Big didn't work out in the beginning, because you're going into a situation like that, you have no fucking idea if it's going to work or not. I didn't have a plan B. I was, um, I, I, I remember that a publishing, one of these guys in my publishing company, and at the time, before it uh, became Sony Publishing, which I'm still on, it was called SBK, and one of the guys, um, from that, you know, Kevin Dangman at the moment, um, Compton, I think. Yeah, I guess he was the K. But yeah, uh, he suggested that, or he was going to try to help me become, okay, wait for it, the next Michael Bolt. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you can laugh all you want to, you know, ironic, I, I met Michael Bolton before he met it, uh, before he made it, and you know, before he became like when a man loves a woman guy. He uh, he was a writer, first he was a rocker. Yeah, uh, yeah, Michael Bolton. I mean, like I had a, I actually, I I loved the guy a lot back in the day when he was a rocker, and even when I did my one of my solo records in nineteen eighty five, I had written with him, and I think it was on some kind of record. Uh, record deal deadline and the songs weren't finished but I I um, I really liked the guy's personality and he was really cool and he was a, he was, he was a rocker back then he wasn't and I'm not saying he, he became smarmy but, but you know he was he became kind of like the Neil Diamond of our generation you know uh, and that's okay but at the time he was he, we were kind of cut from the same cloth, you know, like uh, kind of rock and roll guy, mm. singer. And I and I did one of his songs called "Can't Hold On, Can't Let Go," and that was on it's on one of my solo records. But anyway, I, I like Michael Bolton. Till till later on in life, and I got Mr. Big, and I remember I was in New York City, you know, at, at some radio station, and I see Michael Bolton, and I go, "Hey, Michael!" He kind of looks at me with a look like. I uh, I I don't know who you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway, so this so this publishing guy wanted to kind of groom me into being like Michael Bolton or 
or General Hall or Paul Young or something, you know, some more mainstream pop rock kind of guy. Then Billy Sheehan called. And at the time, I swear to God, Richie, I was in that kind of vein that Daryl Hall, Richie, uh, uh, Daryl Hall, Paul Young styles. Hmm. You know, I really was. I mean, I was going for that kind of vibe. I had chick singers, saxophone, rock band, you know, I, 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 was, I was doing that kind of stuff. And I could sing rock and roll and did it, but I, I, I couldn't get arrested, you know? And, then when Billy called, it was like, you know, the scales of justice. I don't know, man. I just kind of went, I'll try this Billy Sheehan thing. Because I knew I could do the other thing easy. And I didn't want it. Not easy. And I, I definitely wanted to make it. But, all, I, you know, I had this rock and roll integrity, you know. I needed to see my rock and roll. Um, so fucking cliche. Dreams you know, come true, you know. Hmm. And and they did eventually. God fucking don't put me on that. Come up with something better, man. That is fucking stupid that's some stupid shit right there. But I I really did. Uh when I when I that first practice and granted look after seeing Paul and his day glow amps and really, you know, telling me like, you know, it's gonna be good, it's gonna be okay and it kept you know I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. And Pat Gorky's a great drummer, and, and Paul Gilbert plays so loud, and you play so loud. I don't know if I can fit into the situation. And, and they go, well, let's just, come on, man, let's just come up with a couple songs. And I wrote Big Love and Rock and Roll Over on the piano in that rehearsal. And then Paul and I wrote a song called Anything For You. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it was it was amazing. We wrote, I swear to God, we wrote that record. We had the, the chassis of the car, you know, the, the foundation of these songs. In about eight days of our first rehearsal, when Pat Twelve joined the band, when we when we said, "Yeah, Pat, you're our drummer." After that first audition. Now, Eric, crazy. Eric, did you have to do showcase gigs to get a deal? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. I think it was my shirt that didn't uh, go over, you know? <laughs> I still remember going, Billy, Billy going, hey, don't you have any other clothes? I mean, like, I had, like, you know, skin-tight blue jeans, Chuck Taylor Converse shoes that I still wear, and a big-ass polka-dotted shirt. And Billy was like, dude, you look stupid. Don't you have any fashion sense? And I never have. I never fucking have. Hmm. Uh, and he was all decked, you know, with his David Lee Roth clothes, you know, and Paul Gilbert, all spangly, spangly stuff that he's wearing. And that was just, you know, uh, you know T-shirt and, and gym shorts. And yeah, no, we, we, we auditioned, or not auditioned, we did showcases, uh, a lot of them. Um, but, yeah, but, but we did this, but we did the one, and it was, uh, we, we all went to this restaurant called uh, <laughs> Flaky Jake's. 
I totally remember this. And this, this part of the story, man. This is a big part of the story. So we had to play to Jake's, and uh, we hope, we were making a demo. Um, and we and, and the demo had Rock and Roll Over, Big Love, Merciless, and the, uh, uh, a couple songs that didn't make the first album. I wrote a song called She Rides Shotgun. Um, I don't remember. Uh, we didn't have a bit to that rush, I don't think. I, I don't think we did. But we had, it was like a five-song demo. And 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 we did a showcase and we gave the people the demos. But anyway, so we went to this restaurant, thank you, Jake's, and Billy got sick. And that was the day that Atlantic Records was supposed to come to the showcase. And they, and I can't remember the three guys that came down, but one guy was, his last name was Greenberg. And he, I think he was, had something to do with signing that Zeppelin back in the day or something to that effect. It was three powerful A&R guys from Atlantic Records. And they flew down and they were staying at a hotel right down the street from, I think we were at Mates, M-A-T-E-S studio where fucking 15, 20 years later Pat Torpy ended up uh, half owning. Um, it was a great rehearsal place and still is and you know Guns and Roses uh, were always there 24 hour lockout and um, all the great bands Food Fighters and all that stuff but uh, yeah Mr. Bid we were doing showcases and practicing there but um Atlantic Records, we somehow we gave them the demo, and they and they turned around and flew back to New York, and we thought, oh, we just lost our. And we we when we heard Atlantic Records was coming down, we were like, oh my god, dude, Atlantic Records, and those guys just you know thinking the rock and roll aspect, and I'm going to Rita Franklin, you know, come hmm. <laughs> from different worlds, but it, so. They they left and they signed us on our demo alone. Even after uh, the Flaky Jake's uh, debauchery or not debauchery, the debacle. <laughs> so Eric, anyway. did you ever find out the reasons why the other record companies didn't sign you? I didn't. I I didn't know. I mean, I they just I don't know. I, maybe they thought that uh, we were just. I, I remember hearing like the words. Or the name Supergroup. We were like, ah, it's just a super group. It's just going to have one album. They're going to die in the vine. I remember hearing that a lot when we were first starting out. But I have no idea why they didn't sign us. And and I and also, you know, our like I said before, our affiliation with Journey and Herbie. I thought, oh man, we might have a foot in the door with Sony. You know, mm -hmm. Columbia, that, that's what Journey was on back in the day. And that everybody passed on us. Everybody. And Atlantic Records, you know, signed us without even seeing us. So mm. it, it was, yeah, it was a good thing. And then, and then we went back and we did some more demos and we, uh, and we started writing. I think we had, because I think, I think Addicted to That Rush was a song that Billy brought in. It was it was unfinished. And it was, might have been like an italic idea that he had. 
And I remember when this guy, I, I could see it right now. We finally got Kevin Elson to come in and, and help us with arrangements or, or, you know, whatever producers do, you know, and, and go, ah, oh, yeah, this is a great song, but it needs a couple extra parts. And, and that's, and yeah, Billy and, and Paul worked really hard on that song. And I was, <laughs> I was busy writing songs that didn't make the record. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote this one song called Restless Individual, stupid ass man, uh, that had, had a good idea. It, it turned out to be a song called Fly on a Wall that I put on my solo album a long time ago. But, um, uh, I was writing, uh, the lyrics and melody and a little bit of music from, from Merciless because it, it was kind of unfinished on that demo. Maybe the demo, I think the demo had some good ideas on it, but I think there was a couple songs that weren't that good on that demo. And Atlantic just listened to the songs that were good. And maybe other people kind of put it all together like, yeah, I can hear a couple songs, but some of the songs aren't that good. And maybe that's the reason why they didn't sign us. Or hmm. even, or, or even, you know, back in the day, they were, you know, they wouldn't immediately sign you. They kind of like, they would like spec stuff. Yeah, they would, uh, they would have you go in and, you know, write some more songs and they'd pay for your recording and they'd take a look at it. You know what I mean? Uh, and then, and then, and then consider signing you. They, but they would like put you on, put, put, put a hold on you. Kind of thing. Mm. No, they wouldn't sign no, would you off for that. Yeah. Now, was Kevin Elson the only name you had down to produce the record? Did Atlantic want someone else? Maybe Billy or Paul or Pat threw some names in. Can you remember any other names no. being thrown about? No, because you know, when Billy gave me that call a long time ago, he goes, if he was managed by this guy, Mike Bailey, as like, you know, as like a personal manager. And he goes, do you have any management? I go, yeah, I got it. I got the guy Herbie from from Journey, and he and he goes, and yeah, he managed he managed Steve Miller at one time, Santana, uh, Europe. You know, mm -hmm. they, even, they probably weren't even born yet. You know, when Mister Big was, uh, you know, uh, first starting out. But anyway, and Herbie, it, when he, so I said I heard Herbie, and I go, and we have. You know, we have art department people, journey people. We also, you know, we should take a look at Kevin Elson, who produced uh, Journey, and he produced my first uh, Eric Martin band album in 1983. And they, I gave it to them. They, they were sold on Kevin immediately because of the because of the kind of the Journey sound, you know, like the, and, and mainly with like the harmonies and stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was nobody else. That, that, that I, that I could pick up. Hmm. Now, Eric, um, at that stage of your career, what did you what did you need from a producer to get a performance out of you? I, it, yet, well, I mean, I work with a lot of producers, and some aren't musicians, and those are the and I don't want to get like, any of the names or anything, but like the ones that are musicians, uh, I can talk to. And and songwriters, you know, not just you know, Kevin could write songs. He is a, a keyboard player. Um, he knew music. He did live sound. 
and I, I, I trust in him, and I like him, you know. That is the, is, I used to stand at the soundboard when he'd mix Journey and stuff, you know, and I just, I, I just let, I, I thought he was, I could trust him with my songs, you know, like he, I'd spend so much time writing the damn thing, and then you hand it over, and then he goes, well, yeah, take this out, leave this in, take that out, and you're like, oh, what? I hate, truly, I hate him. I hated the producers, you know, because they were just like an, an extra guy that you, uh, like, you had to go through the big gauntlet in the, in the first place. You had to get through like, Billy and Pat and Paul. And I remember, really, it was so hard on me sometimes. You used to go, yeah, it doesn't kill me. You know, like a song that I'd bring in. You'd always say that. I go, oh, man, what do you need me to do? And it, and it goes, ah, it just doesn't kill me, Eric. And then I'd write a song and you go, oh, man, that's great. And then I'd have to play it for the producer. And then the producer would go, yeah, take this out and this in it. So I, you know, as a songwriter, I, I, I used to go, I used to just work really hard so I didn't have to hear that fucking rejection all the time. <laughs> but, um, but I, but I trusted Kevin because he, you know, he, he had a really good sense of sound and tone. I mean, he, I think, uh, I thought Pat Torpy's drums always sounded great with Kevin uh, Elson at the, at the helm. Um, and so did Billy's, Billy's tone uh, on, on a bass and stuff, you know? Hmm. Uh, in, the, in the early days. Hmm. And Paul Gilbert as well. Paul, Paul's changed his, his, not his style, but his tone uh, over the years. But I, I love the way um, that first album sound. And then, the, you know, the the Lean Into It album, it had that reverby kind of sound that Kevin liked, and I liked too, but it, but it definitely, you know, it, it's a lot different from that first album. Mm. It, mainly because, mainly I think because of songwriting. The first album was a little, uh, what I'm thinking of, and I don't want to say basic because that second guesses the songs and the songwriting and the, uh, and the playing and all that stuff. Uh, if I remember correctly, I knew Kevin. I trusted him. And also, you know, this sounds so stupid, but he was the one. He was the one guy. I remember uh, singing a song on my Eric Martin band album, and it was called "Letting It Out." And I remember when I did it. I'm playing piano, and then I then I then I sung it. I remember singing it. And I never seen a producer get jump out of a chair and banging on the glass going, Holy shit, that's the best fucking vocal I've ever heard, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. He was kinda of animated like that. And it and that always made me feel good. And he would do the same thing with uh uh with Mr. Big, especially that first album after um the song uh Anything for You. He was like and and I and I worked so well with Kevin. And I would get it in like, you know, one to five takes. But since, you know, the band, they took a couple of weeks to record tracks. And then they, they only gave me about five days or a week to sing the damn thing. <laughs> and, and I remember when I sang it, and the view was like, maybe the second or third take. And he goes, I think you're done. I think we can comp. 
in other words, comp. Yeah, right? yeah, they comp everything together yeah. to make it a take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't, we didn't take, we didn't take certain syllables or words. It would be like, you know, like, and sometimes I, I tell you, sometimes well, we get to the point. So we, it was like two or three takes, and I go, oh, I want to do it again. He goes, dude, you got it. And I go, no, I want to. Everybody else got to have some time. <laughs> I want to. I want to get the experience in the studio. Eric, you're fucking done, man. We got you know ten, twelve more songs. Nope, I'm going to do it again, and I, I end up doing it like twenty fucking times, just because I wanted to. I just loved it, you know. Yeah. And um, so anyway, long story short, um, I, yeah. So Eric, I really love yeah. Eric, tell me about writing and how did this come about? How can you do what you do with Jonathan Kane? Uh, with Jonathan, another journey to next show. Um, Jonathan, uh, I remember the babies opened to journey. And this is when, uh, I think, yeah, it was Steve Ferry and Greg Miley at the time. But, uh, the babies, uh, opened to journey and Greg was kind of, doing, you know, on his way out or doing solo stuff. And they picked up, and they stole, they stole or picked Jonathan Kane out of the babies. And he lived, I want to say, Philadelphia. I remember his brother ended up playing in a band with me. And, uh, and if I get there pretty wrong, they'll probably call me up and tell me I'm an idiot. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so Jonathan moved to Northern California. You know, I heard you say, like, you know, hey, man, you should be friend this guy. He's a good songwriter and hang out, introduce him to people. And that's kind of what I did. I introduced him to some friends. And, and he'd come over my, I had a tiny little apartment at the time. Uh, after moving out of my uh, my dad's house, uh, I'd kind of go back and forth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had a girlfriend, and she had the apartment. That's where I was. And... Um, he come over and we'd hang out a little bit, and and then when um, so I, so I met I met this guy Andre Pressus, who I ended up writing uh, a lot of stuff. I've been writing with him, for, you know, I've been writing with him for forever years. Yeah, forever. Yeah. <laughs> and so me, and me and Andre, uh, you know, I used to sing on some demos. Andre Pressus. There was another guy named Alex Call, who was a writer. Um, he wrote, you know, uh, eight six seven five three zero nine. Uh, you know, eight six seven five three zero nine. It was like a pop tune, comedy two tone. But anyway, all these writers in this my my it's called Marin County, and a lot there's a lot of bands and songwriters that live around there. So Andre, Alex, and a couple other people. Some of the people from Hugh Lewis and the News, and blah, blah, blah. and then uh, Andre goes, you know, I'm writing with uh, Jonathan Kane. And I'm like, oh, I know Jonathan. He goes, yeah, he, he's writing a song. You should come and sing the song. So I, I sang out a demo. Uh, it was a song called "Living on Love." Never did it. It was never. It never saw the light of day. It was a great song. Uh, you know, I think I sang it for weddings. It was one of those kind of things, wedding kind of song. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan loved the way uh, I sang, and I hung out with him a little bit. And I I used to sing on, on all these demos that he would write, um, you know, songs that he would give to Journey, or he'd send out to other people. And uh, you know, 
he threw a couple hundred bucks my way. I sang on his demos, you know. Huh. And then so one day I was just fooling around on the guitar and I had this this lick. And he goes, oh, that's pretty cool. Let's, we should write some some music together. We wrote two songs called uh, How Can You Do What You Do? And we wrote another one called Voice in the Wind that never, uh, I, I think Mr. Big did it as a demo, but they never got it on a record. And yeah, How Can You Do What You Do? And But I do remember this, and our version, our demo, was kind of kind of slower. Not, 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 not a ballad, it was a rocker, but it was... It was a little bit more. It was a. It wasn't, you know, adrenaline filled as it is on the uh, first Mr. Big album. Huh. And right, but I love the way it sounded on the Mr. Big album. So, uh, I remember the guys in the band saying, "Hey, what does Jonathan Cage think of? Uh, how can you do what you do?" And I go, "I don't know. I'll call him." So I called him and just, "Yeah, man, you guys, you guys took the sex out of that song." <laughs> 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 oh man! He goes, yeah, you took the sex out of that song. I'm like, no, no, no. See what you did, what you done to me. It don't matter if it plays slow or fast. Uh-huh. The message, man. And I go, yeah, no. If you think you're fucking her slow, you're fucking her fast. Like, What's the big deal? <laughs> so, Eric, um, did did the label try to force? the likes of Desmond Child or Holly Knight or Jim Valance or any of these outside songwriters on you other than Jonathan? Uh, no, no, not at all. They didn't, not, <laughs> they have, they did over the years, you know, um, maybe a little bit on lineage. I oh, know they didn't uh, interfere, <laughs> interfere, that's not a good word, but it is slightly a good word. Um, I, I'm no stranger to that kind of stuff. You know, I've done, uh, like on one of my solo albums, I did cover songs by songwriters. And uh, I didn't like it, but I I appreciated people that wrote great radio rock and roll, uh, AOR songs. So, hmm. um, and I did like Desmond Child's uh, writing. And I, I, I loved Holly Knight. That's ironic that you said that. Um, but... Uh, I'm sure my Michael Bowen colors. Um, but, uh, uh, what was I saying? Oh, so, uh, you know, they didn't interfere at all on the, on the Atlantic records at all. I, maybe, how can you do what you do? Could have been on that demo as well. And that's why it was a little slower. And that's, yeah, that's the one that they, we said, not you took the sex out of it. And when you did it fast. Um, but no, they, they didn't interfere at all until like, you know, after to be with you. You know, yeah. and they was like, Give me the next to be with you for, for 10 years after that. Yeah, as if they fall off trees. So, Eric, when, when the guys recorded the debut record, uh, Paul, Billy, and Pat, did they record all their parts together at the same time, or were they all done separate? Um, I remember us all cutting it at the same time. I did uh, guide vocals in a, in a glass booth, looking at them, and they were all in the same room. And so it was live. Like the basic tracks were live. And then Paul obviously came out and you know, played his solos and stuff. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of... Uh, I, I, I hear a little bit more because I'm paying attention a little bit more now. When I listen to uh, records later, after the first album, the first album was like, if there was a rhythm part, it was a rhythm part with a little bit of 
snippet of of a solo, but mainly just a rhythm part. And later records, there was like, you know, two guitars going at once style. You know what I mean? Hmm. And, and Paul doing it. But there was a, it, it wasn't a lot of overdubs on the first album. So who's the guy, Eric, in the band back then? who was never happy with the performance that always thought he could do it better. Was there one of you guys that stood out? I don't know. I, I think Billy was really hard on himself with the sound of the, the tone of his bass, you know? Hmm. Um, and like, he's always been that guy. He's always like, he, I know when he's happy and I definitely know when he's bummed out. Like, God damn, I can't create, the tone it would be and and it wasn't on the record so much I thought I thought he felt really comfortable with that first album I thought uh, I, and I because I, I mean everybody was ecstatic to be there we had had a blast recording it I never saw anybody like, upset at all with the sound and the tone I mean shit we had so much downtime too man we we you know, we, we those guys would knock out a couple songs or not, or maybe, maybe play one song for five, six hours and then we'd play ping pong, you know, for, yeah. for a couple hours. I mean, everybody was like happy. I always saw that side of uh, Billy when we, we would play live and he would be like, like if, if his tone wasn't right, he'd be really upset about it. Hmm. And I think it was because of, because of, I think it was because of the room, or you know, people messing with his amp. Or, you know, yeah, you, you play with a guy for thirty years, and you kind of know, like, oh, I think it's going to be a good show. He's happy. Yeah. Now, when I interviewed Pat on on Billy, I asked him this question: uh, What did it think was the most underrated Mister Big record? Now, Pat picked the debut, and Billy picked Bump Ahead and Hey Man, because they were after Lean Into It, and everything was compared to that record. What 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 do you think is the your underrated Mr. Big album? I, right off the bat, is that album, Stories We Could Tell. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a balanced record. There's, nobody kind of stands out too much. It, it, it's, it's more about the songs. Not a lot of big playing ability. Although Paul Gilbert does play some tasty licks on it, but Billy's kind of tucked in the mix. It's you know, it, it's um, and I'm I, usually on the records. You know, everybody <laughs> the last couple of records we've made, it's like everything and the kitchen sink. It's just got a lot of stuff going on. Like I gotta feel sorry for our producers because you know when you get all of us in that uh, studio were like, oh, I can't hear me and I can't hear me and I can't hear me. Mm -hmm. and, it, and the faders were on 10. But on this record, it seemed like it was kind of a, a balanced record. And that was the one that, um, you know, Paul and Billy were on the road. They contributed a little bit when they came back on some great songs. One song, me, Billy, and Paul were in a room and we wrote... Uh, that song "Gotta Love the Ride," which is a uh, title track, mm -hmm. but um, that was the record that Pat Torpy. I could I could totally see myself. I'm, I'm upstairs in his garage uh, recording studio in the back of his house, 
And Pat Reagan's going, what are we going to do? And I'm like, don't worry, i got a plan. I've got all these unfinished songs that we wrote in the past, and I've written about five or six of my own, and we're going to make this a, a Mr. Big record, even if the guys aren't there, to help out. And then while Pat Reagan is uh, getting, you know, uh, what was happening? So Pat Reagan was getting the studio kind of fixed up for me to, do some demos. That's when Pat Torpy goes, Hey man, I gotta tell you something. I have Parkinson's disease. And the first thing out of my head is like, Oh fuck. I felt bad for this guy. And I was like, why are we doing something as trivial as this record? We should be kind of focusing on you and taking care of you. And he was like, yeah, I, I still want to play music. And I, and I, I, I don't know why I said it, Richie, but I go, yeah, yeah. I, I got nervous and I didn't, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I, you know, I, and, the, and he was cheering up a little bit and I go, I was pulling some kind of weird rabbit out of my ass right there and I just go, hey, snap out of it and let's do this record. <laughs> and I can't believe I said that to him and he's like, what? I go, yeah, snap out of it. I mean, we'll take care of that. We'll take care of that as it goes. But we got a record to write and it's just you and me and let's do it. And somehow, uh, you know, because when you get that Parkinson's, you know, you're you're really sleepy a lot, and you're and you're taking these drugs, and it's kind of making you hyper. And it's like it was it was uh, it was definitely messing with him. Mm. And I didn't realize that he had been going through it for a couple months. I did notice realize something when we were doing the What If album. You know, he he was getting these tremors once in a while. I was like, oh man, not enough sleep. You know, with us yeah. being doctors, it is, <laughs> I mean, they got to go check that, check that. But anyway, the, when we're so he's telling me there's Parkinson's, Billy and Paul are not there. I'm going, fuck it, we're gonna we're gonna you and I are gonna do this record, and we worked so hard on it, and he 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 couldn't he physically. It was the beginning of his Parkinson's, and so it, something was hitting him all at once. It kind of gradually got into it, and he started playing more songs on the road. But at that moment, he couldn't even... Uh, the, the physical strain of hitting a snare drum was too much. So we got this electronic drum set in, and, then, and it was kind of easy for him. He kind of played the pads, and him and I did all the basic track demos uh, it was actually not demos, and we were like laying the the bedding, the foundation for the record. And so him and I did it. He, he played electronic drums. I played acoustic guitar, and we did the whole record like that. And uh, then when Billy and Paul got back, then we started laying their tracks on, and uh, and then Pat got in a room with this uh, second engineer. And he started programming the drums that he had put down as a uh, as a demo. Yeah, yeah, are you following me right here? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> so he, the electronic drum uh, stuff that he did, he also programmed and looped some other, not looped, but programmed other drums on stories we could tell. And like, we've never done that before. You know, we always were like, oh, you know, we don't work with machines. But, hey, man. I would rather have Pat Torpy 
working on it, then, you know, uh, truthfully, I mean, I, I, I thought it turned out great. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the most underrated record to me. A lot of good songs on it. Um, and a lot of um, a lot of spirit that went into that record. It was like when the guys came back, we all had a kind of a meeting at, at Pat's house. And, uh, it, you know, we sort of rallied around our brother when he was going through this, uh, this you know, incredible disease. Mm-hmm. And we were just kind of carrying the flag for him uh, from that moment until uh, his uh, demise. Mm. You know? Now, to, to be with you, that wasn't written before the debut, was it? It, it was. And did, it, did you submit it was, that? I you, had it. You, did you submit that for the debut and it got rejected? No, no I didn't. I, uh, I played it. I didn't submit it. I like when I drive up from San Francisco to uh, or drive down to LA. Uh, we didn't we didn't have a budget or anything. Uh, we just had our own money, and to save money, I didn't stay in a hotel. I stayed with Paul Gilbert, and he lived on a street called Yucca Street, which is I know it was a Holiday Inn across the street. It was on it was like right off of Hollywood Boulevard. And it was funky. It was right down the street from GIT, which I think Paul taught. He was a student there, and then I thought he, if I remember correctly, he, he also taught there as a teacher, like one of the youngest teacher students, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but Yucca Street, man, the, when I opened the window, and the, like I, I had a back bedroom, I think, that I'd stay in, and I'd open the window because it's, you know, bloody hot and, uh, in LA and I and I saw like hundreds of needles in the backyard which was you know that's the junkies would go in the back of Paul Gilbert's house and shoot up right mm-hmm. I mean it was really bad and um I had this blue uh duffel bag and my clothes in it and all my cassettes and one of the cassettes oh yeah Paul was like I, I learned by hanging out with Paul that he was a Beatles fan and I thought well I got a song that I wrote that's kind of Beatles-esque and I go check it out and it was my demo of uh, To Be With You he goes oh man that's a great song wow this is really really good and my memory kind of escapes me a little bit but I did go I never said oh it would be perfect for the for Mr. Big I just wanted to impress Paul with my you know songwriting or my or you know hey man I wrote this little cute little Beatles song that's how I looked at it hmm. and I didn't play it for Kevin and I don't think I played it for Billy and chilling into it but I did play it for Paul and and Paul at the time you know I think he we were writing a song called um, oh shit what is it My Kind of Woman I think uh, and he was teaching me this guitar part and it was kind of you know, dream theater rock song or so, you know, it had this lick in it. And when I played him to be with you around that same week, I was like, oh yeah, man, that's a great, great little song you got there. And then it was back in that blue bag. <laughs> it didn't see the light of day until <laughs> lean into it. You know? Wow. So Eric, give out all the social media sites where people can get a, get a hold of you. I have a Facebook, a couple of Facebooks, just Eric Martin. You got to look for it. Uh, one is one is. What if I could just search EM on it in the front? I got. I don't know. Hey, 
I'm not technically inclined. I should be. I do have an Instagram account. I got 13 people in it. I barely even use it. It's just family. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, mainly just you know Twitter and and Facebook and or as I like to call it, Twatter. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I get email. Just email me. Oh, it's, that's and I, and it's open to the public. It's just Eric Martin Band at AOL dot com. Yeah, email still exists. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I put it. I barely. I get. You know, my family and friends, I use that same fucking Eric Martin band at AOL.com since the 80s. And I put it up there on my websites and my MySpaces back in the day. And like the fans are pretty cool. They just go right to the Facebook. They don't want to deal with the email. So that's all. Yeah, they probably think it's not, it's not you looking at it, though. Well, I, I, if I don't like you, I pretend like it's not me. <laughs> if I don't like you, I block you. I like that. Eric, listen, thanks for giving me so much of your time. It's been a blast talking to you. Right on, brother. Yeah, Thank so. You. Sorry for, sorry for like, uh, Here, how's, you know, your, how's your mouth? Is it, how's your mouth? Is it okay now? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the mouth feels great. My back kind of hurts now. <laughs> <laughs> Serious man, you know, we complain about everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Same shit, different day. All right, all right, Irish. Yeah. Talk to you. All right, Eric, take care. All right, Bye. bye. All right, there you go, Richie's chat with Eric Martin. And like I said, that was done a while back and uh, sitting on that audio. And we got some other audio we've been sitting on as well. And it's kind of like, you know, you know, bands go in and they're doing their remix albums and they're looking for, uh, you know, the un, uh, unreleased cuts or whatever else. And they're digging through the archives. And I guess that's kind of what we're doing with some of these is digging through the archives and seeing what we've got and using that stuff pretty much first as as things we could roll out to you. So we'll see, uh, you know, as time allows, whether we can get more of these uh, these out or not. But like I said, this week, Richie hit me up and said, you know, folks have been asking. And I had a couple extra hours today. So I thought, oh, I'm going to, you know, do the first pass at one right now, get that out. And uh, yeah, hey, just so you know, too, it'd be a little weirdness with the episode uh, numbers as well. But I'm sure we can all work through it. But anyways, for this episode, all done. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is toast. And, uh, you know, remember, be safe out there. We want you guys to uh, keep on listening to Focus on Metal, keep on supporting Metal, keep on being part of the community. And all of that comes down to being safe to yourself, being safe to your families. So with that, have yourselves a good couple of Metal days until we roll out the next regularly scheduled episode of Focus on Metal. And until then, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Still here? It's over. Go home.